Chris Coutrone is the author of The Death of the Millennial Left. He teaches at the University of Chicago, where he also completed his PhD on Adorno's Marxism. He is the original organizer and president of the Platypus Affiliated Society. We talked about his new book and whether the working class really needs to be convinced of anything we're saying. You can hear the whole almost two-hour conversation on patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley. You have a book out, The Death of the Millennial Left, with Sublation Media, and um, I've been reading it all day. I'm not finished it yet, but I was telling you before we started the stream that it's very, it's very clear, um, and it's unusual to find somebody who writes um, theory and who writes politics that writes in such a clear way. Um, and I wondered how you came to writing this book. I found it very interesting to hear your whole kind of history. Uh -huh. uh, and I want to ask you a little bit about that as well. But how did you come to writing um, The Death of the Millennial Left? Okay, so it collects uh, articles that I wrote going back to 2006. And so generally articles that I wrote um, for the Platypus Affiliated Society, so for my students, but also for the kind of public face that they wanted to have the organization have through their publication, the Platypus Review. And um, in this book in particular, you know, so it's the first of two volumes. And I don't know if you'll feel the same way about the second volume and the more theoretical writing may not strike you as being quite as clear. But these articles on like current events. Um, so they were, it was, it was something new for me to write about like current political events, to do commentary on current political events, and also try to include um, the left's own discourse around these events. Um, but, you know, and to be as straightforward as possible about that. Um, and, you know, they weren't really like hot takes or opinion pieces exactly. Um, but they, they do fit into the category of like commentary. Um, and, you know, the perspective that I had on things was, you know, how, how is this fitting into the long arc of history? Like, what's our current historical moment? So I begin the book with some framing pieces that are meant to indicate, you know, that question of like, I think in uh, the, the piece that I wrote in response to an anarchist journal in the UK, Mayday magazine, I said, it's not so much a question of where we are on the left. It's more a question of when we are on the left, like what's our historical moment about. And, you know, analyzing current events from that vantage point is is peculiar but also you know I, I did have a clear conception of what that meant for me and so I think it lent itself to a kind of and also a kind of sober kind of tone to the writing um, you know so these essays really chart that um, the so the death of the millennial left really collects um, all of my writing on current political events as we were living through them in the period of the millennial left um, for mostly for platypus. I think there might be a couple of things that were not originally published in, in the platypus review, but this, this volume is really heavily um, about like the platypus review and also um, prepared like opening remarks for my panel speaking at our public fora um, in platypus where, you know, I, I wrote them knowing that I was going to be in dialogue with established leftists. Um, and, you know, just trying to frame things, just trying to like put 
put a kind of essential Marxist historical frame on current events and look at it from the standpoint, I think I talked about this in the preface, you know, writing for eternity, even though it's on current events, and, but really, you know, more modestly writing for the archive, you know, uh, writing for, um, you know, what would people in 10 or 20 years or 50 years or 100 years, right? And I knew from experience reading uh, the history of the left, like reading things from historical Marxists that were also about current events, right? And, and yet, as Marxists, they were writing about current events from the standpoint of world history, right? So I had some models for that. Um, but it's obviously different now because, you know, I didn't have like a, a movement as my audience, you know, um, I mean, loosely the millennial left was a kind of a movement as an audience, but generally, yeah, without that kind of like audience. And, you know, I had a sense that maybe the people that I talked about, the leftists I talked about in my articles would, would read the articles and they did. Um, but yeah, really trying to be teacherly also you know, um, aware of my pedagogical role that way, you know, that I'm speaking to young people about how they should understand their current historical moment in the long sweep of time. You mentioned anarchists, and it was funny, as I was reading, I thought the first question I'm going to ask is, why do anarchists suck so much? Can you... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, it, admit it, Ashley, you're an anarchist at heart. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Apologies to all the anarchists. You're quite critical. You're quite critical of, of anarchist movements. You're quite critical of the left sort of generally. Um, who do you have in mind when you're talking about the left that you sort of direct so much of your ire against? Right. So, uh, you know, a couple of things. So my own background is with the Trotskyist left. So I guess that's a subset of the Leninist left. And, you know, the Leninist wing of Marxism. And so I think that I've always been aware that there are like determined critics and enemies of the Leninist left, namely, you know, uh, like anarchists for sure, and like libertarian socialists or libertarian communists, they call themselves sometimes, and left communists, council communists, you know, and this kind of thing. And so that's always been there. And then, of course, there are, you know, the kind of what I would consider to be a kind of a right critique of Leninism, like social democratic, uh, you know, critiques of, of Leninism. And so I was always sort of aware of that. Um, and so, you know, I have my own, you know, predispositions or my own kind of favored view of things. Um, but one of the challenges in, you know, with respect to Platypus, you know, the context for these writings was that. And this is what made us kind of go afoul of people at times, is that we insisted on including the entirety of the left in our public events and in our publication. So everyone from liberals to anarchists, right, in a conventional like spectrum, left right spectrum, like, you know, as right wing as liberals and as far left wing as anarchists. And that we weren't going to exclude anybody, you know, um, because we really wanted to capture all of it and we thought that all the aspects of the left have partial truths to them you know have like a point to them um and that therefore you know we couldn't like allow our own bias 
to get in the way of capturing the whole landscape, especially as, you know, the landscape that comes down to us from history. So they all, all the different tendencies on the left carry an unfulfilled task, an aspect of, you know, the unfulfilled task. Um, so, you know, that kind of ecumenical perspective, you know, really got us in trouble because people would take offense. Like, okay, you've invited me to speak, but why are you including this other person? Right. Um, so like Doug Henwood objected to being on a panel with an RCP USA, a Bob Avakianite, and also with like Paul Berman, a kind of liberal pro-imperialist humanitarian interventionist. Like he objected to being on a panel with these people, right? Because he's like, you know, I don't want to be on a panel with like a neocon, even though Paul Berman was not a neocon. I don't want to be on a panel with a crazy cultist, you know, as if, you know, um, you know, that that can deal with the issue of like Maoism or something, you know, just, uh, you know, just call it cultism. Right. So people would just, you know, get get bent out of shape that way. Um, but my own, you know, like I had my, if you will, like own animus, if you will, like the kind of like, think that I talk about it in my autobiographical piece, The Paths to Marxism in the book, um, you know, meeting Murray, Murray Bookchin at the anarchist bookstore, you know, and, you know, it's who's this cranky old man who's yelling at me. And then later I realize, oh, it's Murray Bookchin, who's like a historical figure, you know. Um, and, you know, so uh, I was always kind of a little bit annoyed by like Chomsky's anarchism, you know, and his like anti-Lenin and anti-Trotsky kind of stuff and his kind of um, bad faith, hypocritical, like invocation of Rosa Luxemburg, you know, so this like selective invocation of Marxism to make a deeply anti-Marxist kind of point. Um, at the same time, you know, I kind of thought, well, I have to take this criticism of Marxism from an anarchist perspective seriously, too, right? I can't just dismiss it, right? So, you know, I one of the things about the book, you know, I, I haven't written polemics. I have not written polemics. So, um, in, in Platypus, like the left is dead, that idea that we had early on, that wasn't meant as a polemic, but it was read as a polemic. You know, it was, it was misconstrued as a polemic, as like a denunciation of the left, as opposed to a sober evaluation. Right. Well, we're kind of, we're talking about Platypus affiliated society, like everyone knows about it, um, but we're not on Sublation, the Sublation channel at the moment. So maybe you could give a little bit of background to that movement and how, and what role you have in it. Okay. All right. So I was a teacher, <clears throat> um, you know, I was teaching at the University of Chicago as a graduate student, getting ready to finish my PhD. So I was writing my dissertation and I was teaching in the social sciences core curriculum at the University of Chicago. I was teaching Adam Smith and Marx and Freud and Durkheim um, every year, you know, to first and second year students. Um, and then I uh, shortly uh, after starting teaching that way at the University of Chicago, I started teaching at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, where I had previously gotten an MFA many years before, um, you know, uh, almost 10 years earlier. And uh, I had students 
And those students were politicized by the war on terror and the anti-war movement. And, you know, I'm teaching them Marxism, basically. Um, you know, I'm not like a tendentious Marxist professor, but I was, I teach everything that I teach, I teach generously. So when I teach like Heidegger, I teach him generously, you know, I'm like, okay, what's the point here? You know, what are we meant to get from this? Um, and so it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm teaching things just from a, you know, like a tendentiously Marxist perspective, but I was teaching Marx and Marxism very generously. So at the Art Institute, I taught Frankfurt School critical theory. So like Adorno and Benjamin and Lukács and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, you can imagine that my students were like, okay, Chris, you know, you're teaching us Marxism. Well, what, it, what, is, what does what you're saying in the classroom have to do with what's going on right outside on the street, the anti-war movement, right? Or other things like the immigration rights movement. There was a large mobilization also around that time in 2006 in the United States because Congress was getting ready to pass immigration reform. And so it was quite contentious, but it, it didn't, fell through. Um, and so they, they wanted to know, how does this relate? And this is before the Great Recession, right? So it's before um, capitalism, you know, was sort of squarely in focus. Um, so instead, you know, what they were dealing with was, okay, I'm hearing one thing from you, Chris, but then I go to the anti-war de demo and I read a newspaper from the ISO or, you know, I, I, I also had international students, including British students who went back to England. And so they, the SWP, right? And they're like, okay, these, these people call themselves Marxists and you are teaching me Marxism and it doesn't quite add up doesn't quite add up. So, you know, they were dissatisfied with the left that they encountered. So they were politicized, but they were dissatisfied with the left that they encountered and they wanted help navigating it. And so they asked me to start an extracurricular reading group where I could speak more politically without a kind of, you know, conflict of interest of academic teaching, you know, the way I wouldn't teach in the classroom. They wanted me to teach a different way. Um, and so uh, my friends and I, prior to this, did have this idea of starting like a new leftist journal, and that was going to be called Platypus. But instead, <clears throat> this extracurricular reading group became Platypus. And how that happened was we were reading some current authors on topics. So we read Kevin Anderson and Janet Afari had written a book on the Iranian revolution. They had written a critique of Foucault in particular, but also of the left more generally on the Iranian revolution. And we read that together in the extracurricular reading group um, because it seemed like Iran was the next target in the neocon like war agenda or something, um, you know, axis of evil. Right. And, um, you know, they were local in Chicago, so we were able to have them come and talk about their book after we read it with us, with my students. But then my students you know, were like, well, this kind of private conversation is fine, but maybe we should really have like a more public dialogue between different perspectives on the, on the things we're reading about. So we started hosting public events 
And so that takes a certain amount of resources and it takes a certain amount of organizational like discipline and follow through. And so the reading group became an organization. All right. Um, and soon after we started hosting like public conversations, public events, we realized we wanted to have a record of those things. And so we decided to start like a student newspaper, basically. And that's the Platypus Review, like a kind of review in print, um, you know, of our engagements on the left. So transcripts of our panels, interviews with leftists who couldn't attend our panels, um, articles written by like young activists, right? And so that's how it got started. Um, but, you know, the idea was that a new generation of leftists, the millennial left was very young at the time. So they're in there, they're literally in college or right out of college. Um, that they were arriving in a situation where the left was wholly inadequate. The existing left was wholly inadequate to what they wanted to do. Change the world. So the left is dead as a starting point. And um, yeah, that's how, that's how it got started. And then it spread to New York, like I said, London, Germany. Um, you know, it spread around the United States. Um, and now it's reached, you know, beyond to other countries in the world. So how many members do you have now? Uh, about 300. Okay. Um, so, yeah. so how do you differ then from other groups? Um, people accuse uh, Platts of being contrarians. What do you think about that? You know, contrarianism. So, okay, the, the anti-war movement, right? Like Christopher Hitchens, right? And he has an actual book called, you know, Letters or Notes to a Young Contrarian. Contrarianism is really lame as like an idea. You know, like I would prefer not to or something, right? And it's like, um, you know, so that we were kind of annoyed by that, you know, like we were always very critical of Hitchens, um, even though we were kind of lumped in with him. We thought he was kind of lame that he had kind of gone off the deep end, you know, because um, he had. Right. At the same time, we respected where he was coming from. And we understood that there was you know, divisions on the left that are meaningful. That it's not just like one side is right and the other side is wrong, but the division itself is meaningful even if both sides are kind of lame in their own way. So, um, you know, again, the death of the left idea, um, you know, it was about the preceding generations. It was about like, um, you know, coming up on the 40th anniversary of 1968, right? And uh, recognizing that the new left moment had passed and that my generation, the Gen X left, had not really produced anything new, that we had totally stayed in the shadow of the baby boomer 60s new left generation, um, and that the millennials really were trying to do something else. So there was um, the, there was a reestablished, like a new Students for a Democratic Society, and they had their first national convention at the University of Chicago in the same year that we started Platypus. And so we attended that. And we saw people who were, you know, famous longtime veterans of the new left there in a mentor role for the new SDS. And they just flat out said to the young people, don't imitate us. We failed. 
we can advise you on our failure so you don't make the same mistakes we did, but don't repeat our mistakes. Don't try to emulate us. Very different moment, very different moment, because I think that <clears throat> that moved quickly into a kind of sentimental nostalgia, you know, like just the very thing that they warned about happened. Right. Um, but I think that, so contrarianism was not really what was called for, but taking a departure from, you know, taking leave of the past was important for the young people. And again, I always thought, well, I might be stuck in the past. I myself might be stuck in the past, right? So again, I can kind of guide and teach, but I can't like tell what to do exactly. You know, I do have my ideas, but again, wedded to a notion of Marxism that was very much conditioned by my own history and historical moment. And, and hopefully that moment had passed. Hopefully we were in a new moment. And hopefully, you know, the millennials could reinvent Marxism and its relation to politics. And there was, was there, some thought of that at the time. Was there a, a moment or an event that defined the millennial left? Was it obviously the crisis or Occupy or something like that? Well, okay. So one of the ways that I structured this book in terms of collecting my writings um, was through those moments, the different moments, and they're not, they're not presented chronologically. Um, so <clears throat> they're, they're presented um, chronologically within each section, but the sections are arranged thematically. And I arranged them thematically in terms of what I thought were the defining moments. Now, the anti-war movement, I think, was the formative moment initially of the millennial left. But then the Great Recession happened. And I think the Great Recession overshadowed the, uh, the war on terror pretty quickly. And also the war on terror was occluded by the election of Barack Obama as a supposedly anti-war candidate. Right? So he, he won the nomination in 2008 running against Hillary Clinton as a hawk. She was the hawk and he was the dove. So that, you know, that anti-war movement seemingly fulfilled in the election of Barack Obama. But then the Great Recession quickly eclipsing. So literally, Obama ran against Hillary Clinton on the war. But then even before he was elected, the crash of 2008 happened. And he had to become the economic reform candidate against the Republicans, right? Um, so it was, uh, you know, that shift. So I, I start with <clears throat> the Great Recession as a kind of formative moment. And um, Occupy Wall Street was the second great, kind of mobilization of the millennial left after the anti-war movement, because Obama's election really did usher in several years of quietude on the left. I kind of, there was a recession on the left too that took place, but then it comes back when, when Obama is up for re-election. 
so the prospect of Obama's reelection um, and the uh, phenomenon of the Tea Party midterm election in 2010, you know, mobilized the left in this other way around Occupy Wall Street and not so much via Marxism, more via anarchism. And I discussed that, how it's a kind of reanimation of the um, anti-globalization or alter globalization, the anti-WTO World Trade Organization protests from the 90s, Seattle, 1999, <clears throat> that people had thought at the time had been derailed by the war on terror. I mean, there was actually a conspiracy theory that the 9-11 attacks were meant to stop the anti-globalization movement. That there, I mean, there was this idea, right? There was this idea that like, um, you know, like a 9-11 truther kind of perspective that the CIA did the 9-11 attacks in order to derail the burgeoning anti-globalization movement. Um, and, you know, there were people who didn't have that literal conspiracy theory perspective, but still had that general sense of things like Naomi Klein, you know, that there was this burgeoning movement that was blocked by the war on terror, but that returned with Occupy Wall Street. <clears throat> so start there and then um, get into the war on terror and um, really the long-term effects of how, how the war on terror then reverberated subsequently through the period of the Great Recession in the Arab Spring. And, you know, the wars that broke out as a function of the Arab Spring, like the Syrian civil war and the intervention in Libya. Um, and then, you know, finally coming around to um, Trump. You know, obviously the Trump moment is big. It is... Um, responsible for the DSA bubble, the Democratic Socialists of America, their growth was <clears throat> in one phase um, mobilized by the Bernie Sanders candidacy, but in another phase, it was in response to Trump. Um, and then, uh, you know, again, not, not chronologically, but more thematically, then the end of the Trump presidency in Black Lives Matter in 2020 and reaching back to the Obama presidency when Black Lives Matter started with Trayvon Martin's killing. And uh, the kind of grumbling of the Obama second term, right? Okay, like the first black president hasn't really produced for, you know, the black population and its woes, especially in the Great Recession. Right. So the Great Recession impacted um, black people uh, more disproportionately than white people in the United States. It, of course, impacted poor people. That's what it really did. But it was understood in racial terms. So I deal with that in order to, you know, finally come around to the question of America, the United States history, because after all, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 were all about adjudicating or re-adjudicating American history. 
They had been preceded by the 1619 project. And the statue protests. So I end on the American Revolution and its legacy. So if all of these things are the birth of the um, millennial left, obviously what marks its end then? It's death. <laughs> well, right. So this book is a 2023 publication, but its moment is really 2017, 2018. Its moment is really the aftermath of the Trump election. So it seemed that the defeat of the Bernie candidacy meant that there wasn't going to be an upward and onward progressive liberal capitalist development in politics, but rather that the Great Recession seemed to have been met by Trump. Right? And the intrinsic connection there between Bernie Sanders and Trump that their candidacies really shared a moment, as well as Jeremy Corbyn's leadership of the Labor Party, but they all shared a moment. The crisis of the center-left parties in the Western world is what people have talked about. Crisis of capitalist politics. And, you know, this was the moment that the millennial left decided to throw in entirely with the Democratic Party. So that was the end of their attempt to be a left. It was their joining up with capitalist politics. Um, you know, a socialist left, a Marxist left. They abandoned that in favor of joining capitalist politics. So there's that moment. <clears throat> but there's, you know, in a sense, another moment, which is the post-Trump moment, which is not really a post-Trump moment since Trump is still with us. Um, but you could say the Bernie Sanders candidacy of 2020, you could say, um, you know, the Biden administration, you know, the lull of the last couple of years. So um, I initially did not intend to collect my writings in this way, I have to say. Initially, I intended to, to only collect and publish my theoretical writings. But then it occurred to me that I should include my more current events political writings. And then it, I realized that actually they needed to be organized and curated and published separately as two separate volumes. But, um, uh, you know, collecting my Trump writings, which got me a certain notoriety, but also showing that there was a precedent for those. Those didn't come out of nowhere, but they basically have very similar character to what I had been doing from the beginning of my public intellectual life on the left via platypus, namely my writings on Obama and on the war on terror and the Great Recession, and these things. Well, since you mentioned it, um, what uh, article do you think got you in the most trouble? Well, it would have to be Why Not Trump? Yeah. Why Not Trump? Yeah. <laughs> so can you tell me about that article and what was the response to it? Okay, so that article, um, it's, you know, it's peculiar. Um, so, uh, Platypus is a student organization, you know, it's kind of a campus-based organization. 
which means that it, you know there are small groups of students on various campuses around the United States or around the world. And um, you know we the Platypus Review is like a print paper newspaper, you know um, that's distributed for free. It's not sold. It's distributed for free. Um, it's it's printed on campus student organization money funding. Um, and when we had uh, engaged the uh, Occupy Wall Street moment, which wasn't only in New York, but also in Chicago and other places like London, you know, there were Occupy in, in various uh, areas. Um, I had written a couple of articles to be distributed as leaflets at those protests, at those occupations um, uh, that are in this volume. So one is finance capital, and the other is um, a cry of protest before accommodation. Actually, there might have even been, now that I'm thinking about it, I think that there was the third article that was also distributed as a flyer is Wither Marxism, Why Occupy Recalls Seattle 1999. Um, so I had some precedent of writing very short pieces for distribution. Um, as a flyer. Uh, there's another article that will be in the second volume called Class Consciousness that I wrote to be distributed at an art ex exhibition where I gave a talk. So some of my students, not in Platypus actually, had organized an art exhibit and wanted me to give a talk on like just basic Marxism at the art exhibit. And so I print, I'd written something short enough that I could hand it out as a flyer at that event. Um, so they wanted something similar for Trump when they were, so Trump had announced his candidacy in the summer and coming back to school in the fall of 20, uh, no, this is a whole year later, in fact. So not the fall of 2015, the fall of 2016. So after he had won the primaries, all of that stuff. Um, in the lead up to the 2016 election in November of 2016, um, the platypus members, the chapters, wanted something that they could distribute, like a flyer-length article. And I was skeptical of this idea, but I, I went ahead and did it. And, um, you know, so in other words, talking to young people, college students, what did I want to tell them about Trump in the lead-up to the 2016 election? And that's how I wrote Why Not Trump. I had previously written an article called The Sandernistas, that dealt with the primaries, that dealt with Bernie and Trump. Um, but that was much longer. That's also in the volume. That's that's much longer and a more substantial kind of review of the history. And it's really focused on Bernie Sanders. It's, it, you know, addresses Trump by the by as a parallel phenomenon. Um, but yeah, the Why Not Trump piece written, written in that way um, for that purpose and I think that a lot of people, I already at that time in 2016, Platypus had a reputation, you know, from the era of the anti-war movement. Um, also, I should just mention, there were a bunch of Platypus members who joined around the time of Occupy Wall Street and who quit immediately after Occupy Wall Street. So in the come down off Occupy, in the disappointment after Occupy, um, that was a fractious moment on the left and that impacted Platypus too. So a handful of people left one of whom wrote a letter calling on people to boycott boycott platypus and not participate in our activities. 
right? Um, in twenty. Why, why was that? Well, because they thought, you know, um, they were frustrated with the moment and they blamed Platypus. Like, they, they were like, oh, Platypus is destructive and not productive. You know, that Platypus is out to, like, destroy the left, not give rebirth to the left. And this kind of thing. And um, so they they just decided we had because we weren't doing anything productive as far as they were concerned, that our motives were malign and destructive. And so they were kind of like, you know, because we, we would talk about things. There's an article in the book called Symptomology. We would say that hosting the conversation on the left was really about the symptoms of the death of the left, of the long, like, dead character of the left. So that current leftists were expressing symptoms of history of the historical past and how how we got here like in other words all the dead ends all the various dead ends on the left so from a negative standpoint right all varieties of dead leftism from a positive standpoint each having a partial truth to it that they were transmitting from earlier history but they were focused on the aspect of oh well they're only asking you to speak in order for you to show how dead you are and really, Platypus was based more on the idea that the left itself could admit that it was dead. Because they do. They, they did. And in other words, that they could have a kind of a sober reflection. I think Adolf Reed, who's an old mentor of mine, puts it this way. There is no left. There are only leftists. And really, those leftists are more wannabe leftists than they are truly leftists. Because there is no movement. There is no left. Right? So again, the left is dead. And yet there is leftism, right? Not in the sense of like, I don't know, the Labor Party or the Democratic Party being the left, because they're not, right? But the socialist left, like that idea, not the colloquial idea, but the, you know, there's no socialist movement and therefore there is no left. That made all great idea. And so the, um, the people who, who, you know, decided to take issue with the guy who wrote that letter, um, ended up becoming a Christian fundamentalist, you know, so he was very kind of eccentric, you know, uh, politically unstable, we might say. Um, and so, uh, That's weirdly common. I've seen that so many sure, times. Of course it is. So people are just looking for a kind of, I would say an antinomian ideology, right? So they're, they're looking for like an oppositional ideology. Um, something with which to condemn the world that they're unhappy with. And, you know, it's hard to, like, wrestle Marxism out of that, right? Like, in other words, it's like Marxism, ah, you know, revolutionary, blah, blah, blah. And out of this kind of subcultural, like, countercultural antinomianism of, like, okay, Marxism is going to tell you why, why and how the world sucks. And it's like, that really isn't the point really isn't the point. The point is not to denounce the world as vociferously as possible, as stridently as possible. You know, in other words, it's not meant to be rhetoric, right? But I think that since the 60s, you know, I always have in mind there's a there's a wonderful uh, moment, an anecdote about like the Students for a Democratic Society and Bernadine Dorn, you know, who became a weather underground terrorist and was based in, you know, I think she's still, she's still around. She's Longtime resident of Chicago. Actually, uh, one of the people who she hosted Barack Obama in her living room in Hyde Park to help launch his candidacy. 
Bill Ayers and Bernadine, the one. So she, she, they were having a, a, a convention of the Students for a Democratic Society, and she came out and she said to the reporters who were there, I think it was 1968, uh, we don't talk to bourgeois media. And she had sunglasses on. You know, it's like a Godard movie or something. We don't talk to bourgeois media. Right? So like that idea of like, we, we reject the world. We denounce the world. Right? And, you know, it's very adolescent, you know, which some people never outgrow. Right? Yeah. Thank um, God for the internet, because now there's no, now there's an outlet for all that. Yeah, now there's an outlet for it. But it also, <laughs> it's, it's like. They just attack people way. on social media now instead of in real life. Yeah. And, and old people can also um, enact their um, slide into senility. You know, because as you get older, and I kind of feel it starting with me now, um, you lose your inhibitions, right? So like the cranky old man or the cranky old woman, you know, that, um, you know, there's a kind of regressive moment to aging. You kind of return to like a more childish, emotional, and it's, it's sad but true, right? It's not like you just get more and more mature as you age. You don't. <laughs> you actually regress as you get older. And uh, unfortunately, there are a hell of a lot of people who are old enough and should know better, who Twitter is there for them to just re-inhabit their adolescent infantilism. If they ever outgrew it, you wouldn't know now, right? Um, so anyway, yeah. Now, so, I don't know if I'm immature or just getting old. I can't. <laughs> right, right. There's always that question. Because I think that starting with the baby boomers, people didn't really mature. They just got old. Right? They were like old young people or something. Permanently. Yeah. I yeah, there's a there, there's there's I, I do think there's a big problem with that that there's no sort of adulthood to be initiated into that someone would want to be a part of now like we well, were talking, no talking about the youth of the future and all this sort of thing and the the adult generation is the generation that fucked the world like why would you want to be initiated into that you just want to like delay adulthood forever or there isn't really respect for elders <laughs> there isn't and of course respect for elders also means understanding their limitations right? Like, you know, when you respect someone, you also are respecting their limits. Hmm. You know, like respect for elders doesn't mean giving them unlimited authority, but providing a place for that authority, right? Which is not the same thing as just submitting to it, right? So we have mm -hmm. this, you know, stupid stuff from the 60s, like don't trust anyone over 30, you know, and this kind of shit. And, you know, the cult of youth and, you know, yeah, we've, we've eliminated the category of wisdom, right? Like I always like to point out, there's a difference between being knowledgeable, being experienced, and being wise. Those are three different things, right? So knowledge doesn't give you experience. Experience doesn't give you wisdom, not, not in and of itself right? You have to sort of go through the experience and then you can achieve wisdom. And there's kind of no place for either experience or wisdom. There's only room for... Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.